Welcome to Cato Audio for December 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, author James Tooley discusses private education for the world's poor. Attorney Clark Neely discusses judicial abdication. Daniel Dresner discusses the costs of military primacy. Jonathan Rausch talks about the attacks on freedom of thought. And Democratic U.S. Senator Ron Wyden talks about the NSA's assault on your privacy. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. If you read much history about the founding era, the revolutionary era here in the United States, you'll know that the founders thought very highly of trial by jury. And that's for several reasons, actually. And to talk about one aspect of the right of a trial by jury, Steve Silverman, executive director of Flex Your Rights, and Tim Lynch, director of the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So just to get started here, you know, this is one of the rights that is mentioned multiple times in, in the Constitution. Uh, we're here to talk about one aspect of it. But, Tim, just as some background here, why did the founders feel that this uh, trial by jury, to have, your, in a sense, your peers judge your guilt or innocence? The jury is a very important and special institution because it's brought into criminal cases, and yet the the body that's going to decide guilt or innocence, it's not a part of the government, and that's what the founders loved about the jury institution. When you think about it, what the prosecution is doing is they're trying to persuade the community that somebody has violated the law and needs to be punished, and they're seeking the permission of the community to go ahead and do that. And so these citizens are brought in to serve on the jury, and they're listening to the prosecution, and they're listening to the defense. And they're going to make the ultimate decision whether or not the person should uh, be found guilty and punished or whether the government has overstepped its power. And they're the ones that need to be reined in. And that's what the founders, I think, loved about the jury trial. It, 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 it's, a, it's a part of our system where they're not a part of the government apparatus. They're not a part of the police or the prosecution or the judges. Now, and and juries at the trial, that's sort of a last stage. You also have grand juries, which were before that. So it's, it, juries are, are just a process of involving average people in the process of determining whether or not one, if you should go to trial at all, and two, your guilt or innocence if you should go to trial. That's right. When you read that founding literature like the Federalist Papers and, and the other documents around the time of the founding, they talked about internal checks and they talked about external checks on the government. And the external checks are the ability of people, for example, to vote, uh, vote people out of office. That's an external check. The jury is another external check. They're coming into the court and they can check the prosecution if they think they've gone too far or are overreaching their power. All right, I'm going to bring uh, Steve Silverman, Executive Director of Flex Your Rights, into the conversation here. What we're here to talk about really is this concept of jury nullification. Now, is it fair to think of jury nullification as having putting a jury in charge of deciding not just guilt or innocence of an individual charged, but also the morality of the law under which the person is being charged? Yes. Now, the term jury nullification is an interesting one. And it's one that uh, a lot of you know, lovers of liberty use a lot, but it's actually something that tends to be used mostly among academics um, and scholars. Uh, and the thing is, I think the better term is just calling it jury duty, because jury nullification can be a little bit problematic because oftentimes you know, they're like, oh, you're nullifying the entire law. Like, well, actually, jury nullification just means that you're saying the law 
doesn't apply to this particular defendant in this particular case. And so it gets kind of confusing and almost sounds like you're going in with an assassination squad and taking out the jury when you say jury nullification. So I just like to say jury duty, jury independence, jury discretion. And Tim brought up a a good point um, about where the jury is extremely important as part of the democratic process. And I think, um, you know, listeners are concerned about uh, the twin evils of over-incarceration and uh, over-criminalization. And so when you serve as a juror, you have the power to judge the law as well as the application of it. And the way you do it, of course, is by going to jury duty, which is something that unfortunately about 70% of people pass on that opportunity when they receive that summons. And so the first step in being a hero is is going uh, and attending and serving as a juror. Tim Lynch. One other point about uh, the term jury nullification that's interesting is if you go back to that the founding literature we were talking about a few moments ago, you're not going to find the term jury nullification. That is something that crept into our vocabulary uh, many, many years later. And the important point here is that uh, the, what we refer to now as jury nullification, the founders considered that to be part and parcel of what a jury trial was all about. What, they would not have used the term jury nullification. They would say you're going to uh, you know, criminal court, you're going to have a trial by jury, and the jury has this power uh, to reject the prosecution and to reject unjust laws. All right. So uh, how has this doctrine changed over the years? You said it was part and parcel of what our founders thought was uh, a juror's duty, but uh, we've come to this idea, I think, in modern uh, courtrooms that jurors are expected only to be finders of fact. That's right. In a typical criminal case nowadays, uh, the jurors are expected to be finders of fact, and that means normally in the typical case, they're trying to decide which side is right. They Both sides have witnesses, and the jury is trying to sort out which witnesses they're going to believe in order to come to a conclusion about what happened in the case. But there are cases from time to time where the facts are not in dispute. This might be a case where somebody is on a trial for a marijuana charge, and they want to tell the jury that they were using the marijuana for a medical reason, not just to get high. It might come up in a gun control context where somebody has used a gun to stop a home invasion, but he's also run afoul of a gun control ordinance. And so the facts are not in dispute in those cases, but there's a nagging question about whether or not uh, the law is going to be justly applied to him and what the jurors can do. Can they bring their conscience to bear in these cases in order to sort out what is the proper outcome in those cases. And that's where we talk about, uh, you know, the ability to vote your conscience and where discussions of jury nullification come to the forefront. And and part of this issue relates to uh, ideas like double jeopardy. We have, uh, you know, if a jury throws out your case, it's important that that happened. That's right. There's other these other rules that come into play, and that's where this discussion sometimes gets confusing because uh, sometimes people think, well, they don't think it's right for a jury to be able to nullify the law. You know, that's for our democratic process. This goes back to what Steve was saying earlier. Actually, what a jury, the only thing a jury can do is resolve the case that's before them. They can say, we're not going to apply the marijuana law or the gun control law to this person under these circumstances. The actual law itself is unaffected. It might affect other people the next week or the next month. So it's a really a mis- misguided idea to say that they're nullifying the law. What they do 
what jurors do is they nullify a particular prosecution in a particular case. Now, that can have ramifications, but uh, it, it's mostly about the case that they're deciding uh, for that trial. Now, uh, Steve, you've, you've uh, done films on various subjects of interactions between individuals in the state and how those ought to best be handled. Uh, Billy Murphy, the uh, well-known Baltimore attorney, uh, was in one of these in dealing with police and how you should deal with police. You're working on one with respect to uh, jury duty, jury nullification. What what are some of the most important things that you think ought to ought to go into a film like that? Well, when I when I uh, when we f- I first started doing my work with Flex Your Rights, you know the the reason I started educating people about how to intelligently assert their basic constitutional rights during police encounters because I found that even my most intelligent, educated friends would inform me essentially through our conversations that in fact they did not know their rights. For example, I had smart friends telling me that they didn't realize that they could refuse a police search in their car and so I found myself giving this know your rights talk over and over again. So what I saw was a overall a general gap in the knowledge base among not just my friends, but the whole population uh, when it came to asserting their constitutional rights during police encounters. And with this topic, the same thing applies that I see a general massive gap, even among intelligent, educated people, about their basic knowledge about how they can apply their constitutional power when serving as a member of, of a jury. I mean, I speak to a lot of libertarians who say, oh, well, you know, I'd be interested in attending, but I know I'll get weeded out uh, immediately once I reveal um, that I'm not interested in enforcing these laws. And that gets right to the heart of exactly what our movie is going to try to do. Now, Tim, uh, relating to what Steve was just saying, when prosecutors are in the process of uh, participating in the process of choosing jurors, it's widely believed that they, and I guess defense attorneys as well, as well, prefer people who don't have many preconceived ideas when they walk in. That's right. Uh, The prosecutors are usually, when they've got a drug case, uh, they may ask the question, you know, at the early, before the trial has even started, we're talking about the jury selection phase, they may say, does anybody here have a problem with our drug laws? And for the people that raise their hands, there's going to be extra scrutiny on them, and they will ask them, can you put your personal convictions aside for this case? And if they can, if they say, for example, to the judge or the prosecutor, look, I used marijuana when I was in college. I just think it's wrong to apply these laws to people. They'll say, thank you very much for your honesty. You are excused. And so we're left with a jury pool of people who are very supportive of the drug laws and are willing to – convict people uh, in those types of offenses. So that's the way in which our courtrooms are operating right now, and we're trying to change the law to have a little bit more recognition that jurors can vote their conscience, and some of these tactics that the state is using are inappropriate and need to be changed. And that gets right to the heart of, of the importance of jury duty and jury nullification independent juries, is that we cannot wait until all of the laws are changed and perfect. That's exactly the point of what this is all about. And so when you have a situation where you have now, uh, according to the latest Gallup poll, 58 percent of Americans supporting the legalization of marijuana and you have prosecutors and judges that are essentially trying to cleanse jurors of any of, of this 58 percent, you have a significant imbalance and you have a big problem there. And so the question is, what do individuals do other than simply casting their one vote at the ballot box 
in order to change laws that are wrong or even evil. And jury nullification, the ability to get on that juror, not betray your conscience if you choose to do that, and then vote not guilty, even in the face of 11 other jurors who think that they are required to find a defendant guilty, even if they disagree with the law, if all the facts apply. That's the question, is how do you do that once you come to acknowledge uh, this jury power? And I think it's exciting. There's some uh, some exciting developments going on right now. Uh, Cato originally published the book Jury Nullification, the Evolution of a Doctrine by Clay Conrad in 1998. We're just now in the process of republishing that book. We're going to make it available as an e-version, and we're mailing out new copies to people in the legal community to change the scholarly academic debate when it comes to this subject. And Steve has this video project that's very exciting. And, you know, his past projects have gotten millions of hits on YouTube where people are learning more about their constitutional rights. We've got the state of New Hampshire, unique among the 50 states, has now enacted a law that is supposed to allow defense attorneys to argue during nullification directly to the jurors in criminal cases. So there's a lot of exciting developments going on right now. Now, with respect to uh, how jury instructions uh, are typically carried out. What does that look like in states that aren't New Hampshire? Right. Well, we talked about the prosecutors and the tactics they use. The other thing that happens is that judges, just before the jury goes off to deliberate, the judge will say, my job is to give you and instruct you on the law. Your job is to, dis- to determine the facts. And so the jurors are given this misleading impression just before they go off to deliberate that they have to leave their personal opinions, convictions, and conscience outside the courthouse. What they're supposed to do, the judge tells them, is to follow his instructions and follow the letter of the law. And this is the the misleading type of instruction that we want to have changed. In the same way that a citizen being pulled over by a police officer can never count on uh, the police officer to inform them of the full extent of their constitutional rights. The same thing applies to jurors. They cannot wait for, they cannot count on the judge and certainly not the prosecutor to inform them of their power to vote not guilty, even if all of the facts um, are proven beyond a reasonable doubt. At Judiciary Square uh, here in Washington, D.C., the Washington Post recently ran a story showing these billboards at this metro stop essentially announcing to potential future jurors, hey, you have you have rights here. You can uh, be a much you can be a more powerful juror than uh, you will be told that you are. What what do you make of well, that? The thing that's very interesting when I read that article is that it seems to have created quite a stir and it's essentially it, it seems to be scaring prosecutors stupid to the point where during the, the jury selection, these prosecutors are asking um, would be jurors if they have seen these billboards. And so, I mean, you know, of course, I'm thinking like this has got to be the dumbest thing that they could possibly do because, of course, whether they're not, whether they say yes or no, they're going to want to explore uh, these billboards and the idea of jury nullification afterwards. But what we are trying to do is make sure that that people, you know, we want to be able to reach, you know, tens of millions, which we've been able to do with our videos, understand this concept and understand their power before they get into uh, before they go to jury duty. Tim Lynch, uh, related to all of this, you, you've been very critical of uh, plea bargaining and, and others here affiliated with the Cato Institute have been very critical of plea bargaining as well. It seems that if, if a popular understanding of the rights of a jury uh, were to change, 
in favor of understanding that a jury could not apply a law in a particular case. It seems to me that a lot more cases would go to trial. Yes, that's that's absolutely right. This because it interacts with a person's decision about whether or not they're going to accept or reject a plea bargain offer from the government. If the person on trial or who's under indictment knows that he's going to be able to inform his jurors about all of the surrounding circumstances of his case and he knows that they're going to be able to vote their conscience, he's much more likely to go to trial and make his case to the jury. But if he knows that the judge is going to uh, keep important evidence out of his case, like he can't bring in his medical condition in a medical marijuana case, if that's going to be ruled irrelevant, if he's going to threaten his lawyer with contempt of court, if he tries to make a nullification argument, if he knows these are the way, these are the procedures that's going to happen during his trial, he's more likely to throw in the towel and negotiate the best guilty plea that he can from the government. So uh, plea bargaining and the, those types of rules very much are in play here. I am a, I'm a great optimist uh, about the power of, of what we can do with this public education because uh, I'm really inspired by the case of Kathleen Converse in New Hampshire, who was the straight-laced little old lady who said not guilty um, in the case of Doug Darrell, who was a, a white Rastafarian caught with a a lot of marijuana uh, from a grow he had. And she said when she got on that jury, she went around. And it seemed that everyone was actually inclined toward voting not guilty. But she said, even if they weren't, I was ready to hang that jury. And she has spoken out and continues to speak out about this. And so I would like to see what would happen if we start getting one, two, three jury nullification cases. Because when you know people speak out about this, this creates a viral sensation. So we start seeing a pattern of this where jurors are refusing to find uh, people who are charged with victimless crimes not guilty over and over again and then speaking out about it through all the available social media. You know, at what point do we reach that tipping point where if we get a few more cases making it a little bit more difficult, it gives more breathing space for defense lawyers uh, to maybe get better deals or maybe inspire more defendants to go all the way and get that one single juror who votes not guilty because it doesn't take a majority. One single juror can go in there and vote not guilty and, and uh, if not acquit, at least hang that jury. And we know from history that jury nullification accelerated the end of alcohol prohibition. That's why I share Steve's optimism, especially in this age of social media where you can blast to all your friends on Facebook and Twitter cases like the one Steve mentioned in New Hampshire to spread the word about this. We can bypass the, the mainstream media and spread the word about jury nullification and we can accelerate the end uh, of the drug war and many of the other unjust prosecutions that go on in the United States. All right, gentlemen, Steve Silverman, Executive Director of Flex Your Rights. Look for their upcoming film on jury duty, jury nullification, and Tim Lynch, director of the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice. You can get your copy of Jury Nullification, The Evolution of a Doctrine by Clay Conrad at our website, cato.org and amazon.com. After its release in 2009, The Beautiful Tree drew widespread praise. The book tells the remarkable story of author James Tooley's travels from Africa to China and of the children, parents, teachers, and others who showed him how the poor are building their own schools and learning to save themselves. Tooley sat down for a one-on-one -on -one discussion with Cato's Neil McCluskey in October.
it was about, it's in the year 2000. I was a sort of expert on private education. Um, I'd become an expert, a reluctant expert, because as we all know, and the accepted wisdom then was very clear, private education is about the elite. Private education is for the upper middle classes. And I was on a journey in India, in Hyderabad, where I did live for a while, um, on a mission, as they call it, from the International Finance Corporation, the private arm of the World Bank, helping promote elite private education. I was there doing due diligence for the Indian School of Business. And I was, as I say, I was dissatisfied because my work, I felt, shouldn't be about the rich. For whatever reason, I felt I wanted to be focusing on what the poor were doing. But in private education, what to do. So I, on a day off, I went into the, the old city of Hyderabad. I went to the Charminar here, taking a picture taken at night, where I'd read in my rough guide to India, the slums of the old city were based. And I went with a hunch about what I might find, but was delighted when I did find the down a street corner into an alleyway, I found a low cost private school, a private school in those days charging around a dollar a month. So suddenly the parts of my life seemed to come together, the interest in private education and private schools in the slums serving the poor. I went to this one school, then I found another and another, and I soon connected to about 500 schools which were part of a federation. And I spoke to parents, why were they sending their children to these private schools when they were poor? Clearly they were poor, and yet the, the government schools, the public schools as you call them here, the, the government schools were free. They provided free lunch at, you know, free lunch and free books and everything. And parents told me their children were abandoned in the public schools. So I then went to visit one of these public schools. I'll never forget the sight of those 130 children sitting on the floor in a classroom, eager to learn, learning nothing, and contrasting that with what was going on in the private school. So I came back here to Washington, D.C., really excited, very excited, went to the World Bank, the IFC, telling people the story. People said, no, 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 no. There's nothing much going on here. Calm down, Tooley, calm down. You found maybe a few businessmen ripping off the poor. That didn't seem to fit in what I saw. So I got funding, managed to get grant funding from the John Templeton Foundation, and went on a journey, looking in places like Kibera here, which is not far away from the shopping mall in Nairobi, Kenya, where such terrible things were happening last week. The accepted wisdom says something, a boy like this, um, Frank, where does he go to school? The accepted wisdom say he must go to public school or he's out of school. We followed Frank into the slum, going along the Uganda railway there, into Kibera, and in fact he goes to a low-cost private school, one of about a hundred in the slum of Kibera. Or we went, there's another one, or we went to even in rural China, where we were told definitely not by the, the British aid agencies, definitely you won't find any private schools there. We abandoned cars. We traveled on these three-wheelers in remote villages where harvesting was going on. It was September. Harvesting was going on just as you would see it for hundreds and hundreds of years. We asked people and eventually found in the most remote villages in these foothills of the Himalayas, private schools, low-cost private schools serving these poor communities. In fact, we found 586 of these low-cost private schools in these remote mountains. So this was all really exciting. Then in Ghana, in the fishing villages, 
like this one, Borciano, in just outside of the city, the capital city of Accra. Again, where does Victoria, where does she go to school? She's a daughter of a fisherman. She's the uh, daughter of a fisherman and a fishmonger couple. Where does she go to school? You probably guessed by now. She's in school, yes, but not a public school, in a low-cost private school, the Supreme Academy in Borciano, run by this man, Theophilus. Um, we actually, we did a film, I, some of you might have seen it, called The Ultimate Resource, where we had, we went on the fishing boat with the father, and wonderful going out at three in the morning, coming back with fish that they caught, Joshua, his name. We asked him, why does he send his child to a private school? And he told us, well, he tried the government school. It's right next to his house. He tried it. He'd seen the teachers wander in at 11, leave at midday. And he said the reason why the private schools are better than the government schools is because there is a private owner. If you don't teach as expected, you'll be fired and replaced. It was just like a fishing boat as far as he was concerned. People, if they didn't turn up for work, they didn't deserve to work. Totally unlike in the government schools. So this, I think, has been something for me to celebrate. The beautiful tree, as you say, just out in paperback today, is a celebration of these schools. It travels across those countries and others and says there's something extraordinarily exciting going on here. The poor are not acquiescing, as I said, in the, in the government schools, the public schools, where their children are abandoned. They're now in these private schools a majority of kids in the, in the poor areas. 70% of the poor kids in urban and peri-urban areas are in these low-cost private schools. We tested, we've tested around 35,000 children now. These low-cost private school children outperform the government school children at a fraction of the cost, and the fees are affordable to parents on poverty line in incomes. The Constitution was designed to limit government power and protect individuals from oppressive regulation and the tyranny of majorities. But those protections are meaningless if judges aren't committed to enforcing them. Clark Neely is a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice and author of the new book, Terms of Engagement, How Our Courts Should Enforce the Constitution's Promise of Limited Government. He spoke at the Cato Institute about judicial abdication in October. This book basically, uh, the thesis of this book is something that um, formed in my mind, and really it didn't form, it, it sort of um, invaded my mind after 13 years of litigating constitutional cases and realizing after a while that we have a constitution that provides for about this much government, but we have this much government, and you can't help but wonder, well, how did this happen? I mean, we had a constitution that the framers assured uh, the country before it was ratified that would create a, a federal government of, of few and defined powers. Uh, and there are all these limits in the Constitution, some of which we'll talk about today. And every time we turn around, it seems that these limits are just being ignored. Uh, we have a legislature that, that, that turns over legislative power to the other branches and allows agencies to write not just rules but actual laws. Um, we have a federal government that seems to acknowledge no limits whatsoever, enumerated or otherwise, on its power, uh, and a judiciary that has, as Randy Barnett likes to point out in some of his work, really made Swiss cheese of the Constitution and removed large chunks of it that were there for the specific purpose of restraining government. 
And so the book is an attempt to not only explain how I, it seems to me that this happened, uh, but also to illustrate the consequences of what I call an epidemic of fake judging. And that really is what's going on. From a litigator's standpoint, as someone who goes into court on a regular basis to litigate constitutional cases, the message I have for those of you who have not been in that environment is the very principle of constitutionally limited government is in peril as a result of an epidemic of make-believe judging of judges who basically start out in most, many if not most constitutional cases with the end point already in mind, which is that the government will be permitted to do whatever it's trying to do, and then simply reverse engineer a decision from there and rationalize some way in which the Constitution authorizes the government to do whatever it's doing. And I'd like to give you a few examples of that uh, by way of, of sort of launching into the talk. The Constitution limits government in two or particularly important ways. The federal government is limited, or at least was supposed to be limited, by the doctrine of enumerated powers. The idea was that if we only give some powers to the federal government, then we don't really have to worry too much about which rights we reserve, because the federal government can't do more than we've authorized it to do. The image I use in the book is, if you put yourself inside of a shark cage, then you only have a few inches to move around. But if you put the shark in the cage, then the rest of the ocean is yours. And that's, that's the vision. That's the idea of, of government that the, the framers had for how to restrict the federal government. The other important limitation, uh, and there are many, but the other really major important limitation on government power in the Constitution is the 14th Amendment which was ratified in 1868 after a disastrous national experiment with what sometimes people call states' rights, or the idea that there are no significant constitutional restraints on the power of state governments. Uh, I won't have to, I'm sure I don't have to enumerate for this crowd all of the many ways in which this was a disaster, um, starting with slavery, censorship of abolitionist speech, the list goes on and on and on. And that's why we have a 14th Amendment to correct the disastrous belief uh, that, that unfortunately the founders had and that persisted for more than 100 years, that basically we could trust the states not to violate individual rights. And it was not necessary for there to be any constitutional, or at least no uh, federal constitutional restrictions on the states. So the examples that I'm going to give will deal with uh, both of these issues. Now, I'm sure all of you will remember June 28, 2012, a day which shall live in constitutional infamy. That is, of course, the day uh, which the Supreme Court handed down the Obamacare decision and said that essentially nationalizing about one-sixth of the economy was perfectly consistent with the doctrine of enumerated federal powers that I described uh, a moment ago. Uh, some people saw in the NFIB v. Sibelius opinion, AKA Obamacare, a uh, silver lining. Because, as you may recall, the federal government was not allowed to micromanage our healthcare decisions on the basis of its usual go-to power, the Commerce Clause. Uh, five justices says that was, said that was, uh, uh, even for them, that was too much of a stretch. And so uh, Chief Justice Roberts essentially rewrote portions of, of the Affordable Care Act to transform the individual mandate to purchase insurance 
into an option that you could exercise or not as you see fit, and you would just pay slightly more in taxes if you chose not to exercise this per totally voluntary option. Now, never mind the fact that the law actually refers to the individual mandate as a penalty some 18 times, and even the Chief Justice acknowledged that it was more naturally read as a mandate than an option. When you're dealing with make-believe judging, the question is not um, what is the correct constitutional result. The question is, can I rationalize my way backwards from a bend over backwards and let the government do what it wants uh, in this case? And let me just say, if you put enough creative people in a room together from all three branches, they will usually come up with a way to rationalize whatever the government is doing, and hence the epidemic uh, of runaway government and make-believe judging in this country. Now, we were all assured, right, that, that, that one of the great things, or one of the things we should be happy about with the NFIB decision was that the Supreme Court had tightened up Commerce Clause jurisprudence. Well, let me tell you a little story about the message that at least one federal circuit court got in the wake of that. Um, this is six months after the Obamacare decision came down, December of 2012. The 11th Circuit handed down a decision in which they discuss the Obamacare decision, the supposedly tightened up federalism, and here's what, what, what was the issue in this case. Um, there is a museum in Key West, Florida called the Hemingway Home and Museum. Uh, it is actually the house where Hemingway did a lot of his writing, uh, and it's now a museum, and it's a kind of a funky museum. It's in Key West, which is a very funky place, and so um, there's a lot of uh, greenery outside, and things are pretty informal, and one of the things you'll notice if you go there, as my wife and I did back in February, is there's a bunch of cats running around. Well, these cats are the descendants of a six-toed cat that was supposedly given to Hemingway by a sea captain. Uh, called, the cat was called Snowball, and one of the interesting things about Snowball was that he had six toes. He was a polydactyl cat. So there's all these descendants of Snowball running around the museum. Well, somewhere along the way, a volunteer at the museum got disgruntled with the museum and decided that she wanted to get the museum in trouble. And the way she was going to do it was she was going to point out that, in her view, the cats were not being properly taken care of because they had no shelter to sleep in at night. Now, who do you go to when you want to get the Hemingway Museum in Key West, Florida, in trouble for not taking care of its cats properly? You might think uh, the uh, local animal control board, possibly the county health department. No, no, no. Be more ambitious. Put your mind to work. You go straight to the US Department of Agriculture if you're really serious about getting this museum in trouble, and that's precisely what this woman did. Uh, and the Department of Agriculture opened a two-year investigation and sent a team of investigators down to Key West not once but three times to document what nobody disputed, which was that these were outdoor cats with no shelters to sleep at night, uh, and ultimately sat down with the uh, owners of the museum and began to dictate to them uh, that the the uh, changes that would be necessary in order for the museum to come into compliance with a federal law that was originally uh, enacted to enable the federal government to uh, take care of primates in science experiments and laboratories and things. But they had stretched it all the way to cats at the Hemingway Museum. Now, for those of you of a constitutional mindset, you might say to yourself, well, where does the federal government derive any constitutional authority to tell uh, the Hemingway Home and Museum how to take care of its cats? particularly cats that were not bought or sold, but were merely born, uh, and not for nothing, are marooned at the very southern tip of Florida and will never cross a state line. Well, it's gotta be the Commerce Clause, right? Because that's what it always is. So how do you get there? Well, you gotta hand it to the 11th Circuit. Here's how they got there. There's a gift shop at the museum, and it sells cat-related merchandise. So 
that means these cats have a substantial effect on interstate commerce because people might be coming down from New York and Virginia to buy cat-related potholders and keychains. Well, this is fake judging. This is not a genuine attempt by any reasonable stretch of the imagination to enforce constitutional limits on government power. And I will say this, it is a mockery. It is a mockery of the principle of enumerated powers, particularly in the wake of a decision that we were all assured was going to, or had tightened up the Commerce Clause doctrine. Well, apparently, the 11th Circuit, at least, didn't get the message. And by the way, you may recall, the 11th Circuit was the court that originally struck down the Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act on Commerce Class grounds. So if anything, the message the 11th Circuit got apparently was to loosen up, and boy did they. Does global order depend upon a single power enforcing the rules of the game? And is the United States capable of playing this role indefinitely? Daniel Dresner is a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. He says there are significant costs to sitting atop the global security order. Dresner spoke at a Cato Institute conference on the subject of global security held in October. What have you learned so far today? You've learned first, the U.S. spends an awful lot on defense. Um, you know, if you compare the United States expenditures to the rest of the world, the U.S. is now responsible for close to 40% of worldwide military expenditures and close to 60% of great power military expenditures. We spend an awful damn lot. Um, you have also learned that threat perception has been perhaps inflated. And that, in fact, if you actually do a more accurate uh, assessment of the actual threats to the United States, perhaps the threats don't match that military spending, that there would be ways in which you could uh, cut back. Uh, another thing that I don't think you've learned, but I think should be talked about, is actually the political shifts within the United States about defense spending, which is, I think, 10 years ago, you could, you could absolutely talk about how trying to go after defense would be you know, the, the third rail of politics. I think, if anything, the last two years, shifts, particularly within the GOP, have made it such that you can now talk about pushing for cuts in defense spending and get reelected. Um, and that, you know, increasingly, the, the GOP, which used to be thought of as the uber-hawkish party, I don't think is any more. I think the hawks are actually a minority within that party now. Um, so this leads to an interesting question. If there are these pressures to cut defense spending, um, what, would the, you know, what would the actual effect be? And as you would imagine, uh, this has caused some pushback from the, those very hawks. First of all, they would point out that if you actually take a look at U.S. national security strategy, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about George W. Bush or Barack Obama, a sort of cornerstone of that national security strategy is, in fact, the idea of U.S. military primacy. So the notion that the U.S. You know, will be you know, not only the most powerful military in the bloc, but will obviously be so powerful that no one would even think of challenging the United States. Um, and the argument that has been made by some, including Eugene and others, is that if we do cut back on that defense spending, um, you know, and we reallocate that money either in the form of, of tax cuts or in the form of, of different forms of public uh, goods infrastructure, that this would be a net gain. Um, a lot of hawks have pushed back on this. Uh, Bob Kagan, who I think is the smartest and most literate of these, uh, let me quote this in particular. Those who support cutting the defense budget think that if the United States would simply scale back its role in the world, it could save money and make raising further revenue unnecessary. This is a faulty assumption. Were the United States to cease playing its role in upholding this order, were we to retreat from East Asia or to go back away from the challenge posed by a nuclear Iran, the result would only be global instability. From a purely economic perspective, it would be far more costly to restore order and stability, both essential to a prosperous global economy, than it would be to sustain it. 
now, besides the fact that clearly Kagan hasn't read Eugene Goltz, you know, it's an interesting uh, argument put forward. And it's not just been put forward by Kagan. Steve Brooks is a co-author of a, um, a fantastic paper uh, with Bill Wolforth and John Eikenberry that makes the case that, in fact, there are significant economic returns uh, for the United States to maintain military primacy. So this paper is part of a larger project that I've, I've uh, been investigating to try to find out exactly what the causal logics are, whereby having military primacy actually leads to increases in, uh, in revenue. In other words, how, how do you actually make the money? How do you make the buck from the bang, as it were? Um, this is an interesting question, because actually in international relations scholarship, there hasn't been that much written about this, um, as in fact, Brooks, Eikenberry, and Wolfworth pointed out. So the punchline, I think, is that you know this the hypothesis hasn't really been tested. And in this paper, I look at sort of both the oldest and newest arguments. The oldest argument is what I will call imperial rents or imperial extraction. And the newest argument is one that Eugene talked about, which is this notion of hegemonic stability theory. Um, the conclusion I come to is that essentially both of these are one argument is wildly exaggerated uh, or somewhat exaggerated. The other one is just simply flat out wrong. Um, let's go to the imperial rents argument, or as I like to put it, the Donald Trump theory of international relations. Um, because if you remember back during those brief shining two weeks when Donald Trump was the leader of the GOP presidential nomination, you know, race by public opinion polls. You know, Trump's great insight into foreign policy was that the United States had not extracted enough oil from Iraq and from other places in the Middle East where we had sent our troops. And if he was president, he would make damn sure that we would be able to get that sort of return from our military investment. And in some crude, truly preschool way, Trump was trying to articulate the notion, I think, that there was some advantage to be gained from actual, you know, uh, economic empire. Um, empire is the oldest form of, of territorial organization in the world. And the notion is, is that by having an empire, you can have resources flow from the imperial dominions to the metropole. Um, so military primacy presumably allows the, the hegemon to engage in coercive extraction. Anywhere where it invades or it sends its troops, it will somehow get booty from those dominions uh, whether they're formal or informal. Now, you might logically ask, is this still useful in the 21st century? You know, post 9-11, uh, there have been some people who have argued that, in fact, yes, for certain raw materials, oil, that you could, you know, use that uh, military force to extract that resource, and that would actually be relatively valuable. Or another argument that uh, people like Max Boot have made is that by using force, you can drain the swamp uh, of uh, threats thereby you know, preventing those threats from potentially hitting you here at home. Um, the evidence for this is crap. There's just no other way to put it. Uh, I, I just, you know, uh, in the pre-industrial age, there is absolutely evidence that, in fact, empire did pay off, to be fair. Um, I think the re this is sort of a long-lasting uh, thing. If you take a look, you know, most of the ec uh, economic uh, literature on pre-industrial empires show that there was some gain, in fact, from exploitation. Um, there's considerably less evidence from this in the industrial era. Uh, if you take a look at Great Britain, for example, it actually earned a higher rate of return on its investments in Latin America where it didn't have uh, outright colonies than it did in places where it did have outright colonies. If you look at the Soviet empire during the Cold War, you know, it actually forcibly removed a lot of factories from East Germany and moved them uh, to the Soviet Union. The evidence there is that after the first five years, actually, the rest of the Warsaw Pact was a net drain rather than a net gain. Uh, to the Soviets. Um, as for the post-industrial age, you know, th there's a couple of problems with this. The first, and, and David Edelstein has done work on this, for this sort of extraction to work, you would actually have to have a very long-term occupation 
of the countries in question, and yet it is, in fact, the long-term occupation of countries in question that is almost guaranteed to generate the kind of resistance that undercuts the ability to extract resources in the first place. And, you know, last on this, you know, you take a look at places like Afghanistan and Iraq. The United States certainly went in and, and you know, used a lot of force, and yet the biggest foreign direct investors in those countries is China, uh, which suggests that, in fact, maybe it's better not to be the country going in. Okay, so we can get rid of that, but really, you know, anytime I can write a paper where I talk about Donald Trump is, is fun. In 1993, when Jonathan Rauch's landmark book, Kindly Inquisitors, was first published, the idea that minorities needed special protection from discriminatory or demeaning speech was innovative. Today, it's standard operating procedure across much of the globe. In a newly expanded electronic edition of the book, Rauch, an openly gay advocate of same-sex marriage and of gay equality generally, argues that suppressing hateful speech does minorities more harm than good, and that the gay civil rights movement of the past two decades dramatically illustrates the point. He spoke at the Cato Institute in October. The critique of liberal science, I believe, is now more careful and more narrow and more plausible than it used to be. It used to be something like if a member of a vulnerable minority group, gays, for example, is offended, you've done something wrong and you should be punished for it or you should be silenced. Today, it's something more like a hostile environment doctrine. You can read about it in a fine book by Jeremy Waldron called The Harm in Hate Speech. I disagree with it, but I can recommend it. And it says something like this. Look, if someone just offends Jonathan Rausch subjectively, tough for Jonathan Rausch. That's free speech. We're for that. But what about a case when you've got so much hate speech going on that you created a hostile environment for minorities especially traditionally vulnerable minorities, gays, blacks, and so forth, that they cannot effectively function as equal citizens in society. Um, they feel like second-class citizens. They feel intimidated. They feel silenced. It's an objective standard. It's a social standard. Once you reach that standard of hostile environment, governments need to step in and regulate speech. And indeed, most governments have. America and Hungary are, to my knowledge, the only two exceptions. In other Western liberal democracies, hate speech codes are the law. Um, moreover, as you'll hear more, I think, from Greg Lukianoff, um, hate speech uh, hostile environment doctrine has been bureaucratized on the campus in America um, and uh, has become part of the furniture down there. So I decided to take a look at this and see in the new afterword to this book if I could say something intelligent about the very, very strongest case for hate speech. I decided to examine that. Waldron's thought experiment is take a society, imagine it is festooned with speech that is hostile to minorities. Imagine eight-year-olds and 10-year-olds who are gypsies having to walk to school every day under signs saying, gypsies, get out. Imagine a society saturated with hate speech. Surely then, he argues, at least in that case, should we not have a speech code? Well, I can bring some experience to bear on that. Um, this thought experiment is not completely hypothetical. Blacks, of course, lived through something like that for many years in America. And I am gay and was born in 1960. I grew up in the environment that Jeremy Waldron describes. 
Of course, as I hope all of you know, openly gay people could not serve in the government in any capacity. We could not get security clearances. We could not serve in the military. We were harassed and arrested by the police, which made a sport of giving us arrest records. So we then got fired from our jobs because private employers would not employ us. And of course, we were beaten and sometimes killed on the streets also for sport. And all of that went on in a background of universal assumptions that homosexuality was socially dangerous, sinful, and sick. Now, how it can be sinful and sick, no one in those days ever bothered to explain. But this was so universally believed to be true that no one said otherwise. It was on the nightly news. It was what came from the pulpit, the idea that gay people were simply the moral equal of everybody else and that our relationships was, and our love was just as good seemed preposterous. This was literally the society saturated in hate and hate-filled assumptions. Well, another case I don't have to belabor at Cato, this has changed. You all know it's changed. Many of you have been part of this change. And those of you under 30 hear of all this as a distant memory, an echo of a primordial era, which I'm very happy about. So then I ask myself, well, what changed it? Well, here's what we know did not change the situation. Hate speech laws. You obviously were not going to get a law protecting gay people from hate speech in 1968. It would have seemed absurd if anyone had even thought of it. And in fact, if you had hate speech laws in 1968, they would have protected children and families from homosexual speech. They would have been used against gay people. Um, hate speech laws are the cart, not the horse. They come along after a society reaches a critical mass of opinion that supports minority rights. Now that we have a better idea how the National Security Agency violates the rights of Americans, sows distrust among allies, and even tries to weaken security standards for communications, it's time for reform. A leader in this arena is Democratic Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon. He spoke at a Cato Institute conference on the National Security Agency held in October. In my view, a good way to measure the credibility of scholars and thinkers in Washington is by watching to see whether they can stay true to their views, regardless of the impact their views have on partisan politics. That's why Cato scholars like Jim and Julian Sanchez are the go-to leaders, the people we look to for leadership on these issues of security and liberty and big thanks to you, Jim, and, and to Julian for having me today. Let me begin by saying that this conference could not be more timely. The Senate Intelligence Committee <clears throat> is going to soon be marking up a new surveillance bill. And the House and the Senate Judiciary Committees are working on legislation as well. <clears throat> Two weeks ago, a bipartisan group of senators, myself included, kicked off this debate by introducing the first comprehensive bipartisan surveillance reform bill following the June disclosures. Our legislation would end the bulk collection of Americans' records, 
close the backdoor search loophole that allows Americans' communications to be reviewed without a warrant, make the FISA court operate more like a court that's worthy of our wonderful country and expand the ability of our citizens to have their grievances heard in the federal courts. Now, these issues are all going to be discussed today, so I thought I'd start with my bottom line. The goal of our bipartisan bill is to set the bar for measuring what really constitutes real intelligence reform. And the reason our bipartisan group wanted to put this marker down early is because we know in the months ahead, we are going to be up against what I call the business as usual brigade. They're the influential members of the government's intelligence leadership, their allies and think tanks and academia, some retired government officials, and sympathetic legislators. And their objective, and I want to state this clearly right at the outset, is to fog up the surveillance de debate and convince the Congress and the public that the real problem here is not overly intrusive, constitutionally flawed domestic surveillance, but the real problem is all that sensationalistic media reporting. And their end game is ensuring that any surveillance reforms are only skin deep. Some of the business as usual arguments have a little bit of a Alice in Wonderland flavor. We have heard that surveillance of Americans' phone records a.k.a. metadata, is not actually surveillance at all. It's simply the collection of, you know, bits of information. We've been told that falsehoods aren't really falsehoods. They're just imprecise statements. We've been told that rules that have repeatedly been broken are actually a valuable check on government overreach. And we've been told that codifying secret surveillance laws and making them public surveillance laws is really the same thing as actually reforming overreaching surveillance programs. Suffice it to say, and I'll explain why, it is no such thing. These arguments, of course, leave the public with a distorted picture of what the government is actually up to. Those tiny bits of information, when put together, paint an illuminating picture of what the private lives of law-abiding Americans are really like. Erroneous statements that are made on the public record but are never corrected mislead the public and other members of Congress as well. Privacy protections so-called, that don't actually protect privacy, are not worth the paper they're printed on. And just because intelligence officials say that a particular program helps catch terrorists does not make it true. This is some of the peculiar logic 
like the false choice between security and liberty, then I think we are certain to hear from the business as usual brigade, and they are going to double down with that argument to protect the status quo. Now, I want to spend a few more minutes talking about the specifics that are going to be part of what we'll hear from this corner. Now, I'm encouraged that the president has said that he supports the creation of an independent advocate to argue cases before the FISA court. I also believe that the intelligence leadership is going to argue for limiting the advocate's mandate and the advocate's resources. They will most likely propose that the advocate should only be allowed to argue cases at the request of FISA court judges, and that he or she should not be allowed to appeal cases or assist private companies and individuals that wish to challenge overly broad surveillance orders. In reality, you create this kind of uh, approach where you don't have a mandate and you don't have the resources that are needed for you know, real oversight what you would have is their cover for business as usual. The executive branch has also begun declassifying information about domestic surveillance authorities and activities in response to the disclosures by the media and the lawsuits filed on the free, under the Freedom of Information Act. I think the expectation is that that will continue. But when it comes to greater transparency and openness, the executive branch has shown little interest in lasting reforms that would actually make the intelligence community more open and transparent. And executive branch, branch officials are probably going to resist the attempts to mandate greater transparency. My view is, is this is hugely unfortunate, because requiring the government to be more open about the official interpretation, in other words, this is not the secret operations, the official interpretation of the law is critical. It's the only way that our people can decide whether or not laws need to be changed. I also expect the defenders of business as usual to try to codify the surveillance authorities that reformers want to repeal. Friends, from a privacy and liberty perspective, this is truly a dangerous proposition. It would spark a new era of digital surveillance in our country and serve as a big rubber stamp of approval for invading the rights of law-abiding Americans. The argument is going to be from these defenders of business as usual is that the government is going to be collecting lots and lots of data on innocent Americans, but nobody ought to really worry because there are rules about who gets to look at it and when. There are multiple and serious problems with this trust us argument. 
Number one, when the Founding Fathers wrote the Fourth Amendment, they didn't say it's okay to issue general warrants as long as you have the rules for when you're allowed to look at the papers you seize. The Founding Fathers said that the government should only be allowed to obtain somebody's private papers and effects if they have evidence that that person is involved in a crime or, in effect, nefarious activities. And the reason they said that is that collecting private information about people has an impact on their privacy, whether you actually look at it or not, the views of Director Clapper notwithstanding. Number two, none of these rules involves individual review by a judge. If the NSA decides that it wants to look through the bulk phone records database or conduct a backdoor search for a particular American's emails, it can do so without getting the approval of anyone outside the NSA. So I would argue there aren't enough independent checks on the government's authority there. For number three, I'll go back to looking at the actual track record of the intelligence agencies. The rules have been broken, and the rules have been broken a lot. In 2009, the FISA court itself ruled, and I quote, the minimization procedures proposed by the government in each successive application and approved as binding by the orders, the orders of the FISA court, have been so frequently and systematically violated that it can be fairly said that this critical element of the overall regime, the business records regime, has never functioned effectively. You know what that means in kind of English, you know, not legal jargon. I'm a lawyer, kind of name only. That's legalese for a serious smackdown of the government by the court. That's what we're talking about here. Even if these rules were somehow written in a way that totally erased the privacy impact of bulk records collection, I don't happen to think it's possible. The fact is that the routine violations of these rules over the years clearly demonstrates that trying to rely on this approach is seriously flawed. So the defenders of business as usual are going to argue that the best way to protect Americans' rights is to codify these rules into law. Maybe we'll give them a little tweak around the edges here and there, but we really ought to embed them in the law. This would be a huge mistake. Codifying the rules for bulk phone records collection into law will just make this constitutionally flawed program more permanent. And putting a congressional imprimatur on invading the rights of law-abiding Americans is a mistake that Congress would regret. In particular, it makes it easier for the executive branch to use the Patriot Act to collect other types of records in bulk in the future. This could include medical records, financial records, library records, firearm records. The list goes on. The executive branch has refused to rule out using the Patriot Act to collect these records. 
So any of them, any of them could be up for grabs. If the rules for bulk phone records collection are written into law that will make it easier to argue the use of the Patriot Act for bulk collection was deliberately authorized by the elected representatives of the people, that's not in the public interest. Codifying the bulk collection program into law will usher in a new era of digital surveillance, and it will normalize overbroad authorities that were once considered unthinkable in our country. Now, defenders of this business-as-usual approach, as I call it, were clearly hoping that public outrage about these programs would fade once there were details uh, out there so that people had a better understanding of what has occurred. And you'll recall that was a comment made early on. That, you know, once people just know more about it, all this um, sensationalistic you know, media reporting will be exposed you know, for what it is, and people will feel comfortable with what has been reported. But the exact opposite has happened. The more information people learn about these programs, the less they actually like them. The polls show that public opinion has moved significantly in a pro-reform direction since those initial disclosures were made back in June. The fact is that most Americans think their government can protect our security and our liberty. These two are not mutually exclusive. And a lot of Americans feel that there hadn't been enough effort by elected officials to delivering on both of those counts. As a result of this groundswell of public concern, members of Congress have been uh, outlining ideas for reforms. We're going to talk a lot about various proposals you know, today. Let me just suggest that this discussion has essentially evolved in three phases. The first phase was in the immediate aftermath of the June uh, disclosure, disclosures. Then you had a number of members of Congress, in effect, reintroducing ideas they had proposed in the past and were considered newly relevant, given the disclosures of June. I was among those, and Senator Udall and I brought forth an idea that we felt strongly about, and that is to end bulk collection of the phone records on law-abiding Americans. The second phase unfolded over the following months as members who hadn't been as extensively involved started to develop additional ideas. This included reforming the FISA court, allowing private companies to disclose more information about their cooperation with the government. The third phase begins now, and you have members of Congress trying to take the best ideas about the important issues and meld them in to a comprehensive reform agenda. That's what I and Senator Udall and Senator Paul and Senator Blumenthal sought to do with the bill we introduced uh, several uh, weeks ago. I also want to commend uh, Chairman uh, Pat Leahy 
who has done yeoman work in this area for many years, and he's working on a promising package in the Senate Judiciary uh, Committee uh, at this time. So I offer up that reformers are in a better position uh, today, but we know that the challenge of getting reform over that bar that I described uh, earlier is still going to involve a lot of work and convincing some who have not been with us in the past. We know that uh, defenders of business as usual are going to use what I call the language of reform. I wish I had a nickel for each time I heard a senior intelligence official say that their agency is open to considering a particular change in the law. The reality is you're going to hear a lot of that in the days ahead, and they're going to talk about the need to make changes, restore public confidence, but make no mistake about it, behind the scenes, they're going to be working very hard to preserve the existing authorities. And those intelligence leaders are going to pull out all the stops. We saw some of that in the House you know, vote that uh, was held uh, earlier. They will pull out all the stops to try to hold off the kind of real reforms I've described. So I've been in tough battles before when it seemed like the odds were insurmountable. When I think of the days ahead, sometimes I think about the battle against the anti-internet freedom legislation that you might remember as the PIPA and the SOPA bills. I put a hold on the predecessor of those bills in late 2010 because I saw that there would be an opportunity for a groundswell of grassroots you know, op opposition. And we won. We won several years uh, later when there was a Senate vote scheduled to, in effect, try to defeat my hold. And millions of Americans weighed in and said, we're certainly against piracy and the like on the net, but we're just not going to sit idly by and watch all this damage to the cause of internet of freedom. Like in that you know, instance, it's going to take that kind of groundswell of support from lots of Americans across the political spectrum, letting their members of Congress know what they want, communicating that business as usual is no longer OK, and they won't buy the idea that liberty and security are mutually exclusive. Key parts of the debate are starting now. They're going to unfold in the next few weeks. And that's why what Jim and Julian have put together is so important. Different bills are going to be brought forward. The leadership in both the House and the Senate is going to assess which bills they want to use as the base bill for discussion on the floor of the House and the Senate. For the millions of law-abiding Americans 
who care about protecting security and liberty, the values that the fathers, the founding fathers, fought for. The time for action is now. For those millions of Americans, reformers are going to be there when those citizens ask us, how can we help? We'll be there. The time for reform is now. The financial crisis and Great Recession have vastly increased the power and scope of the Federal Reserve. A new e-book from the Cato Institute, Money, Markets, and Government, The Next 30 Years, examines those changes and considers how the links between money, markets, and government may evolve in the future. Download your copy today at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next year.